and welcome to another episode of the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour. I'm joined today by a very special guest and a very uh, good friend and somebody I'm very proud to call my friend, Victoria Coates. Dr. Coates was the uh, Deputy National Security Advisor to President Trump, and she went on then to become the uh, Senior Policy Advisor to the Secretary of Energy and his representative to the Middle East and North Africa. Victoria is currently serving as the Distinguished Fellow in Strategic Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. And yes, I was looking away to make sure that I gave her a Gus title, uh, the right uh, word. So anyway, I'm very pleased to have her here. Hey, Victoria, how are you doing? Well, and always, I'm great. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's a great, great privilege, I feel, to have you on my program and to um, pick your brain uh, for myself and from and my own erudition and also for that of uh, of uh, the people who are watching. Thousands and thousands of people are going to be racing as soon as they find that you've joined me because you really are uh, one of the premier analysts of the uh, Middle East and North Africa uh, in the United States, I would say. Um, and I wanted to talk to you this week because there's so much going on and it all seems rather negative. Um, you know, you have the uh, nuclear talks in Vienna, they dispersed on Friday so that everybody could go back home and get instructions because they're getting to crunch time. And this after Richard Nephew, I think his name is, who was uh, the expert on sanctions and apparently another member of the American negotiating team quit because they couldn't stand uh, Robert Malley's uh, uh, genuflection to the Iranians, and they were very concerned about where the negotiations were heading, um, at least according to the Wall Street Journal report on what happened. Uh, in the meantime, you have the UAE that is now being attacked by missiles from the Houthis, who are the Iranians' Yemenite uh, uh, proxies. Uh, they had another missile attack, which was apparently intercepted uh, during the visit last night, or uh, we're, we're taping on Monday, of Israeli President uh, Isaac Herzog, who's in uh, Abu Dhabi. Uh, I think this is the third uh, missile that the Houthis have shot at Abu Dhabi and the UAE uh, over the past uh, not very long time, week or two, um, expanding their war from just Saudi Arabia into the UAE, openly as punishment for them joining the Abraham Accords. Um, in the meantime, the UAE and the Saudis are maintaining or expanding their talks with the Iranians. The UAE is Iran's apparently largest trading partner. Um, and then you have Iran and Russia and China all having naval exercises together. So there's a lot going on. None of it seems very good. Um, and where do you think we should look first when we're trying to analyze what's happening in the region? And is there some point, you know, like an Archimedes point that we can look at and say, if we could just you know, switch things in one direction, then other things might fall uh, uh, along, you know, along the side or, or follow on and, and things might move in a different direction. How difficult do you think it'll be to reverse the damage that's being caused as well right now? Well, that's, I mean, that's a lot. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's hard to find uh, points of light in, in, in that picture. I would say you, you did mention the one that sprang to my mind, which is President Hartsock's visit to UAE over the last couple of days. And important to note, it wasn't just a flying visit. He didn't land, uh, see Mohammed bin Zayed and fly out again. He did an extensive uh, slate of meetings I spoke to the Emirati ambassador to the United States last night uh, to check in after the missile attack. And 
And he said that they had been delighted by the visit, that they were very pleased with the president's visit, visit to the mosque. Uh, they were going to the expo in Dubai, I believe today. And you know, they that, said that, that 600,000 people visited the Israeli uh, exposition in the Dubai expo, which is pretty and it, this may Yeah, this may seem a kind of a, a funny detail, but one of the things you do at the expo is you're, you're issued an expo passport, which is a souvenir, and mm -hmm. you get stamps from all the uh, all the the the, uh, the uh, what do they call the pavilions that mm -hmm. that you visit, and the Israeli stamp is one of the most popular stamps. And mm -hmm. if you think about a couple of years ago when we all had you know multiple diplomatic passports issued because you couldn't have your Saudi visa and the same passport that you used to go to Israel, you know, and now you have people from the Arab world lining up to get Israeli stamps uh, as a souvenir of their of their visit. You know that that really points to the fundamental change, which is the good news. And the other piece of good news is that the uh, you know the the Emirates and the Bahrainis and to some extent the Saudis and and Omanis have absolutely no interest in backsliding on this. Uh, they they do not want to see this go away. They want to have the very tangible benefits of the Abraham Accords continue to be made clear to their respective peoples. And uh, I put Morocco in that in that camp as well. So I think that that is to the good. Uh, I would hope that the current American administration could just take a policy of benign neglect toward the Abraham Accords, let the private sector engagements percolate along on their own. And you know, if there's a change in the Congress in uh, in November, it's possible that you'll be you'll see a much more aggressive forward-leaning posture in the Congress to uh, to support the Abraham Accords, to support those relationships, and also to reach out to the Gulf allies who are feeling feeling very very alone in all of this. And and one point I wanted to make about the attacks on UAE, and you know there have been three, they sort of seem to happen on Mondays for whatever reason, but this, this Monday is obviously to coincide with President Herzog's visit to express their displeasure about peace and prosperity in the region, but the one last Monday also targeted uh, an installation where there were American servicemen. So make no mistake, I mean, this is basically the Iranians attacking American servicemen and women and you know, by the grace of God, you know, they were, and by the grace of the Patriot missile uh, batteries that defended them, you know, they were not injured. But we can't assume that's always going to be the case. And meanwhile, you have Rob Malley and his team, as you point out, engaged in these discussions in Vienna, as if there's some kind of good faith discussion that you can have with a regime that's attacking your allies and your own people. You know, they and were it just makes that. no sense. They were saying that, uh, I mean, a couple of things about that. One is that um, there's a former American, I think, uh, hostage who was hunger striking for five days outside of the negotiations in Vienna, demanding mm -hmm. freedom for the hostages. And then Rob Malley came out and said, yeah, you know, we can't really see how we'd get a deal without freeing the hostages. And then it came out today that the United States is asking Qatar to unfreeze, I think, $10 billion of Iranian oil uh, revenues in exchange for freeing hostages. So they're just encouraging the taking of more hostages by saying, we'll give you $10 billion if you let uh, the mm -hmm. American hostages out. So I find that, you know, uh, just alarming uh, and on so many different levels, but 
that's Robert Malley's response to, you know, yeah, we definitely need those hostages out. Um, here's $10 billion. Uh, let's see you get them out. Um, and uh, I just, and then you also had, you know, alongside the Abraham Accords, which are very important, you have this uh, Saudi and UAE attempts to, or moves as well as Egyptians to uh, get closer to the Chinese and the Russians and looking for ways to kind of balance their or diminish their dependence on the United States. And I'm wondering whether, although it's the, the Abraham Accords continue to be very popular in the Arab world, whether the strategic, whether the strategic rationale for them, which is an unofficial but very clear uh, anti-Iranian military alliance, whether that's being undermined now because of the sorts of things that Robert Malley is doing, that the Biden administration is doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran and the Houthis, you know. It's certainly posing a challenge to it. Uh, again, the, the good news is that nobody wants to choose to get closer to the Iranians. And you know, if you're given a direct choice between the United States and China, reasonable folks tend to choose the United States who are a little bit nicer. Uh, but and and you know, certainly the security arrangements were one of the great attractions for the Abraham Accords and the idea of, of entering particularly into a security relationship with Israel. And that I think remains attractive, but you know, quite frankly, given the fact that the Biden administration repaired none of what I considered to be the fatal flaw of the original JCPOA. I know it's hard to pick one, but in my opinion, not having regional engagement in the deal, except for the Iranians, was a huge problem. And you know, I it and so if you don't have the people who are directly in the path of what is obviously a military nuclear program for the Iranians. At, at, at least at the table, I don't understand how you think there can be regional buy-in for the deal. So, you know, I don't, I don't blame anybody for feeling like they, you know, given that the United States is about to make such an enormous strategic security blunder that, that they need to figure out what, what their path is and how they're going to protect themselves. And, you know, quite frankly, that could mean talking to the Iranians if, if that, if you feel that's your last resort. Uh, so I'm not surprised that, that that activity would be going on. You know, it's disappointing. And I know, uh, you know, a number of our regional uh, contacts who do talk to the uh, Iranians came to the Biden administration at the beginning of the administration and said, do not take any of the pressure off of them. If you wanna get to a deal, the way to do it is ratchet up the pressure because the Trump administration has left you with enormous leverage and they did the opposite. Right. You know, from the outset, removed, they did the yeah. they did the outset from the outset. So they, they're not listening to the folks, even the folks they purport to listen to, they're not listening to in the region and they think they know best. And it's it's a, a really impending disaster, in my opinion. You know, and, and one of the other aspects, and, and you were, I think, very supportive of it, and maybe you can talk about it a little bit, is the gas cooperation that Israel developed with the East Mediterranean. Uh, you know, gas uh, consortium with with Cyprus and with Greece, and even with with Egypt. And um, the concept there was that they were going to bypass Turkey and make a gas pipeline uh, that would include these countries and go directly to Europe, 
uh, rather than uh, being dependent on Turkey and that that was going to help everybody. And just a couple of days ago, or last week, the Americans informed Israel and Greece and Cyprus that they no longer supported uh, the pipeline, um, which of course ratchets up significantly uh, Turkey's uh, position vis-a-vis -vis Israel and undermines the alliance that had been built uh, over time, specifically uh, because of the gas fines between Israel and Greece and Cyprus, who are members of the EU. Yeah, it's, it's really one of the most disturbing things. Uh, again, it's hard to pin down the most disturbing thing, but this was a real unforced error. Uh, you know, one of the moments I can remember very clearly from being in Abu Dhabi in the summer of 2020, when I knew you know, sort of in my heart that we were gonna to get to the Abraham Accords uh, was when the Chevron deal to purchase noble energy in the Eastern Mediterranean was announced, one of the American energy majors going into an Israeli uh, an which Israeli means that they, which effectively meant that the Arab-Israeli conflict was over, right? Because we, right, I mean, you know. even more than the courts themselves, there's no way Chevron uh, endangers its uh, relationship with with Saudi and Qatar and UAE over Israel, uh, unless they have ironclad assurances that that's not going to be the case. So, you know, energy was in a way at the heart of of where we got with the accords, and you know, I'm basically agnostic on the pipeline. My feeling on the pipeline was when the, when the numbers made sense, the pipeline would be built. Because uh, there's no sense building a pipeline that's so expensive that the natural gas, when it gets to Europe, isn't purchased because it's so expensive. Mm -hmm. But technology is evolving all the time. So one of the arguments and one of the small victories at the Department of Energy is that I you know, that they would, they said on, on an economic basis, they did not support the pipeline. I said, how about we say we do not support the pipeline yet, you know, that we, we want to continue to explore, you know, we, we have concerns right now, but that we, you know, we are in theory strongly supportive of, the, of this cooperation. And now we've gone through the looking glass where we have a Turkish propaganda video coming out over the last couple of days that has the State Department Special Envoy for Energy, Amos Hochstein, talking about how you know, the State Department won't support any fossil fuel projects anymore and they won't support the pop pipeline. So these people are being used in Turkish propaganda. I mean, that's not a good look. And you know, for us, you know, particularly with what is going on with Russia and Nord Stream 2 pipeline to allow that to go into, uh, go into use, well, saying we won't allow our partners and allies to you know, move into this very productive uh, cooperative relationship is, is, in my mind, I mean, akin to madness. It just, it, and they, they didn't have to do it. They could just say nothing. But it, for whatever reason, you know, with everything else that's going on in the world, they decided to spend the calories on getting this announcement out there, which means they care about it. Well, you know, it, it's a little bit weird because, I mean, one of the things that's, that was in a way positive, you could say, about Joe Biden was that he was anti-Turkish, right? I mean, as vice president, he said some pretty mean things about Erdogan along, you know, because he was becoming so anti-American. And here, I mean, the main beneficiary 
or it's not just that the main beneficiary of this thing is is Turkey, but it's also that you've seen Turkey, which is now in dire economic straits, is suddenly making a play for the Jewish state, thinking, you know, somehow or another, the Jews who, because he believes that the protocols of the elders of Zion is true, that the Jews are going to somehow or another pull his fat out of the fire that he set, you know, on his economy. And, um, and you know, and by going against the pipeline deal uh, with Israel and and Greece and Cyprus, the Americans are now being very friendly to Turkey. I mean, that's a very friendly thing to do for Turkey. And Israel now is being very like almost pushed and pulled again back to uh, Turkey, which you know I I don't think is a very stable place to be, largely because. Everything bad that happened in Israel's relationship, Israel and Turkey were the closest of allies 20 years ago, but, you know, they stopped being almost entirely, if not entirely, because uh, Erdogan is a jihadist and he hates Israel and he hates Jews and he doesn't want to have a strategic relationship with Israel for ideological reasons. So the idea that Israel should go in now and not expect to be booted out again as soon as he doesn't need us and and in a very profound way while Hamas is operating in in Turkey is pretty alarming but it seems like this is something that this is an outcome that now Joe Biden wants as well well it's it's curious and you know i think you know Erdogan is increasingly unpopular in the united states and you know it's it's unfortunate because when turkey is in a stable productive position, they can be an enormous force for good, given their location, their resources, you know, nothing would make me happier than to see the Turkish government take a very different posture and, and go back to being a, a true friend to the Jewish state. And I think it can happen in the future. I mean, bear in mind, Erdogan is not going to, you know, go on forever. And, you know, they have some political alternatives, and they have upcoming elections that are looking to be fairly uh, hotly contested. So, so let's see. Because, as you said, you know what he's done to that economy is is nothing short of criminal. And when I was last in Ankara, which would have been October of 2019, you could buy three lira for the dollar. It's now around 15. Uh, you know, so, so the, it, there's the, it just can't go on uh, indefinitely. And and certainly, uh, you know, I think the Turkish people can and should expect expect much better than that. But certainly any policy right now that rescues him, especially given his actions in the Eastern Mediterranean, you know, his attempt to co-opt the uh, transitional Libyan government, all these other things, you know, this really should not be greenlighted by an American ad administration. Well, what do you think, I mean, you know, Trump had an underlying concept that really, I think, was the basis of his foreign policy. And you could understand it, right? That he wanted to empower America's enemies to defend themselves so that America wouldn't have to keep doing it. That he wanted to disengage. America's allies. What? America, you said America's enemies. I oh, I'm sorry. I meant allies. Obviously, yes, yes. No, because <laughs> it does seem that Biden's doing the exact opposite What I, that I was describing Biden's policies. And, that, and that's really what I wanted to speak to. Trump, I, I mean, you know, if speaking as, as somebody who lives in Israel, which is America's most stable ally in the Middle East, um, you know, Israel benefited massively from this very new American policy, which was saying, look, we don't want to be tied down to this region forever. But 
we're not going to abandon it. What we're going to do is we're going to empower our allies to, to defend themselves, which is an incredibly important thing to do because, you know, America for many years has built its alliance structure based upon dependence of allies on the United States. And, you know, I, I, I can understand the rationale for it, but um, as, as, an, as a U.S. ally, it's much better to be uh, independent than dependent. And I mean, any country uh, should want to be uh, strategically independent rather than dependent because you never, you don't want to be dependent on the whims or the, the vicissitudes of another country's national interests. Um, and so, so for Israel, Trump's foreign policy was amazing and, and transformative in many ways. But now we're not just back to the old, you know, we want Israel to be dependent on the United States. We're in a, in a very different place. And I'm trying to figure out, is there, do you see a guiding concept that's directing Biden's foreign policy other than just undoing everything that Trump did regarding, you know, the consequences be damned? No, I mean, I, that does seem to be the guiding principle. Yeah. There seems to be no interest in uh, examining any of our policies or initiatives to see if there might be merit to them. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that you and I have discussed, which I think is a very important initiative that will keep uh, as warm as possible and ready to go in the event we have a new administration in, in 2024 or 28, would be uh, the Middle East Strategic Alliance concept, which is the GCC plus Jordan and Egypt, and now Israel can openly be part of that discussion and basically impose what was President Trump's views on NATO onto Mesa, where uh, the Middle Eastern countries would fund their own defense. The United States would you know, participate and pro provide leadership and organization, uh, but that it really would be a regional defense uh, network that, that the region would be bought into. Because I'm old enough to remember, I mean, to have read all of, of Don Rumsfeld's papers from NATO from 74 and, and uh, when he was ambassador, and he was complaining about the Europeans not funding their own de uh, defense you know, almost 50 years ago. So that's not new. It was something that was allowed to develop. And, you know, President Trump made great headway in uh, really putting European feet to the fire and saying, if, if we're going to put our people and our material in your continent to defend you, you know, y'all are gonna have to pony up. And so the idea would be to not let that happen in Mesa from the get-go and make sure that it is a true alliance and a partnership uh, that the region feels responsible for. So that, that kind of concept, I think, can continue to be discussed and developed. Again, the Congress can get involved in, in working on that as, as well. Uh, in the meantime, so that if, if we do have a change, we can be ready to go with it. Can, can you explain a little bit what you mean by Congress can do this? If there are, if, if as right now is forecast by just about everybody, um, although we haven't seen who's counting the votes, but uh, as has been forecast, uh, the, the Republicans are likely to retake control in a major way of both houses of Congress in November. And and if that happens, what, what exactly could Congress do to try to uh, um, undo some of the damage? Or, and you know, what is it that Congress can do? 
Uh, it's it's definitely a challenge, as as I know from my experience working for Senator Cruz, both right. in the minority and the majority. Uh, you can't. It, it's very hard to. Oh, force. let's just say uh, Victoria also served before she joined the Trump administration. She was Senator Cruz's foreign policy chief. Uh, and it's hard to force an executive branch policy. You can certainly slow a lot of things down. So uh, you it, when you're controlling, I mean because the control that Congress has is the power of the purse. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you could get pretty granular, you know, prohibiting the use of any funds to reopen a consulate to the Palestinians in Jerusalem. But you could appropriate funds to open a consulate to the Palestinians in Ramallah uh, if you wish to do that. You know, so you can, you can tinker with things that way. What do you mean? Like if, if they say we want to open a consulate in Jerusalem, you can say you can have your consulate, but it has to be in Ramallah. Right. But, but I mean, you, you would have one uh, vehicle that would prohibit the use for any consulate in Jerusalem, and you'd have another vehicle that would permit I see. the opening of a consulate in Ramallah. Now, because of the security situation, that would largely be symbolic. I don't think the uh, I don't think the State Department would ever go ahead with it. But you could say, look, you know, we're not stopping you from talking to the Palestinians. You want to talk to Palestinians? Go to Ramallah and talk to the Palestinians. But you're not going to do it in West Jerusalem, which is, as we know, where the consulate general, former consulate general, is. And so, you know, that that's the kind of thing you can do. You know, on Mesa, I, you could do a uh, amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, which would then hopefully be fund, funded by the appropriators to, you know, to to fund, you know, a headquarters or a series of meetings on the topic, you know, whether or not the administration would attend would be another question. But by the time we get to this, we'll, we would be, you know, well into 2023 and the new Congress and 2024 is around the corner. So, you know, what, what the Congress would do in that period would lay down the markers that would hopefully be picked up by any new Republican administration, uh, you know, in January of, of 2025, you know, and so that's the kind of, of sort of foundational work. One other thing I did want to mention in this in this context is there's a bunch of very weedy, boring things that I do not want to get into uh, and put all of your viewers and listeners to sleep. But legislative fixes that the Congress can get into in, in 2023 that will be enormously helpful to any new administration. And this is everything from you know the one, two, three agreements that we do on civil uh, civil nuclear programs, which dates back to the 50s. The legislation overseeing the use of our strategic petroleum reserve dates back to the 70s. All of this needs to be overhauled and, and, and modernized. The Democrats have no interest in any of it, but I think a Republican Congress would want to spend the this year or so uh, after, after these midterms getting that work done so a new administration could really hit the ground running. Well, um, you know, when you think about it, I guess I, all of us were looking at what's, what the Biden administration is doing vis-a-vis -vis Iran and really re, rebuilding uh, America's alliance system or its posture inside of the Middle East uh, away from its allies and again towards Iran and its and its terror proxies, which is just I mean it's 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 Obama's policy, but uh, uh, five years later after everything that has happened, both in terms of Iran's uh, advances in the nuclear field, and also with everything that happened in terms of the uh, the Abraham Accords and the alliances that were 
uh, uh, built uh, between Israel and the Gulf states in particular, but also North African states. Um, and, um, and really, you know, I think that a lot of the damage here is so profound that it would be difficult for a future uh, administration to repair. I mean, when you talk about the Republicans only getting up and running if they take over the House and Senate in 2023, the question is, where is Iran's nuclear uh, nuclear program going to be by then? Um, they're saying that they're just weeks away from breakout. I mean, they could very well have a couple of nuclear uh, warheads by 2023 uh, at the at the current rate. Um, so we're looking at a region that could very easily be transformed far before, you know, well before a presidential election and 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 arguably at least months before the a Republican majority in Congress would be able to actually do anything. Well, that that is the hard reality that we face uh, and elections elections have consequences and, you know, you could probably make the argument that the most consequential election for the United States was actually the, the two Georgia Senate seats uh, last January and losing control of the Senate and all that has entailed. And you know that, that we cannot change. And so you're absolutely right. We're looking at a very, very dangerous period. And you know, from my contacts in both the House and the Senate, you know, I know everyone is feels that the best use of their time and energy is making sure uh, that these midterms are as much as a success as possible. Because, you know, we are definitely facing a witch's brew in the Middle East, but that is not the only witch's brew we're facing. Uh, and we have Taiwan, and we have North Korea, and we have, you know, a, a very dangerous situation in Ukraine. So all of all of these are things, you know, we need to be as as attentive to as possible, but you know, there's literally nothing nothing we can do, you know, unless and until the administration recognizes, you know, the just complete breakdown that they are overseeing, and you know, you wonder, you know, the the line we were we're given was that the you know the grown-ups were back in charge. These people all have very long government experience uh, that doesn't seem to have help them at all in this first year. But I think back to the Carter administration, which had a lot of the same kind of hoopla going in that, you know, that finally after all the disasters of, of Nixon and, and Ford, you know, the grownups would be back in charge. And they, of course, made a horrible hash of it. But at the end, they recognized it and they did reverse course. Uh, and, you know, it took Afghanistan and, you know, the Iranian revolution, all of which starts to sound pretty familiar for that to happen but you know it's always possible that that some kind of you know light of reason is going to dawn on these people and they're going to realize everything we did wasn't necessarily wrong and everything they're doing is not terrific well i mean i guess the question then is i mean the democratic party in 1979 when uh, when the soviets invaded afghanistan and when uh, the iranian uh, revolutionaries took uh, control of the U.S. Embassy and held all the diplomats hostage there uh, was a very different Democrat party than it is today. I mean, it, it really has undergone a very profound radicalization uh, since uh, 2000. And, um, and, and so I'm not sure. It, it's very strange, in fact. I mean, it seems that, that Biden is very uh, much a captive of the most radical uh, fringes of the Democrat Party. I mean, Robert Malley 
worked for Soros in the interregnum. And he, you know, I said on, on the Israeli television yesterday, I said, you know, he's a dove that, that makes the, the doves blush. You know, he's, he's really off the charts in terms of his pro-Iranian positions. Uh, and so I, I don't know. I mean, I would, I would like to believe that there would be some uh, reckoning, but I mean, do you see that when you look at Tony Blinken, when you look at Jake Sullivan, when you look at, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of disposition of the senior and Wendy Sherman, who's a serial uh, uh, a piece. You know, I mean, she gave North Korea the bomb, and then she went mm-hmm. ahead and gave gave Iran the the path to the bomb. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, do you really see any potential for these people actually waking up and and saying my you? my hopes are not high? Um, as I said at the beginning, I mean, my my biggest hope is for benign neglect to the things I care about. Uh, that they could just kind of leave them alone. That might be the the thing we would we would hope most for. One thing I would say, though, is, you know, I've called what's happening to the Democrat Party, you know, the Corbynization of the mm-hmm. American left. And the the good news is there is that what Corbyn did to labor in Great Britain was catastrophic. Right. You know, when, when push came to shove, you know, the, the British people said, this is disgusting. We're not going to stand for it. And you know, to some extent, that may be what's coming this November is the beginning of, you know, wow, now we really see who these people are, you know, and and we we cannot be associated with, you know, rampant anti-Semitism, with, you know, rampant crime, with all the things that are, are going a little bit awry here. Uh, so so it, it, it's not a great policy for them, but it's, it's very difficult to live through while I, I agree with you, it is captured the, the power center of the of the left. Well, I mean, it it also takes you to the question: what's happening on the Republican side of the aisle? I mean, uh, there seems to be. I mean, it it isn't a question of seeming. There is uh, a significant cleavage inside of the Republican Party. A lot of it has to do with where do you fall on Trump, uh, but it also falls on uh, you know where do you how do you see America's role in the world? I mean, there. Uh, uh, there's a, there is an isolationist um, a tendency that's getting stronger among a lot of people on the Republican base, and I'm not I'm not actually certain where I fall on it. You know, if you're going to be going into a country fighting for 20 years and then running away, uh, maybe it is better to just mind your own business because why would you want to see your country humiliated in that fashion? I mean, there, there's a real question about that. Um, but how do you see the Republican Party uh, in terms of it's, I wouldn't say unanimity of purpose, but sort of sense of shared, of shared uh, destiny and um, willingness to work with one another inside of the Republican Party. Well, I think I think that you know we do have some very vocal uh, libertarian leaning, both politicians and pundits, you know, notably Senator Paul, uh, but. I would add, you know, one of the things, you know, because I, I I talk to a lot of those people. Uh, you know, Senator Cruz has a strong libertarian streak. Uh, my very close friend Chip Roy is congressman from Texas, also strongly libertarian. But the day Senator Paul uh, objected to the funding for the Iron Dome sy- system, which was 
held up as a great symbol of this fracture within mm-hmm. the, the uh, Republican Party, Congressman Roy and I published a op-ed in Newsweek condemning uh, Vice President Harris's sort of infamous incident, incident rather at George Mason University when mm-hmm. she basically condoned genocide against the Jewish state. And you know the fact that that Chip wanted to do that, and we we didn't time it; it just happened. But I thought that juxtaposition. I mean, he he was all in on that project from the get go, and so even amongst that type of Republican, Senator Paul should really be seen in isolation in his approach to these policies. And you know, certainly there's been no stronger defender of, of Israel in, in the Senate than Senator Cruz. Our record on that is something I'm immensely proud of. And, and he continues that work uh, to this day. It's something he feels intensely passionate uh, about. And so, you know, I, I think it's something to be watched. I think it's particularly a concern among young people, uh, particularly those who are being indoctrinated on our uh, wonderful <laughs> college campuses. And, you know, that outreach to that age group needs to be made education, uh, you know, and demonstrating to them, you know, the enormous value of this, of this alliance. But, the, you know, the good news is, is, is it's, it's, a, it's a story that can be told. And uh, I just, I think we just can't take it for granted, though, uh, that, that absent, you know, an active push on the part of, of folks who do think the U.S.-Israel alliance is enormously important, that it's just going to happen. It, it needs, it work needs to be done. Because I was actually even not, not talking so much about Israel and the U.S. I was talking about um, um, the Republicans' ability to actually lead in a coherent fashion and win. Um, because mm-hmm. if you have a, a party that's at war with itself, then it's also going to, you know, it'll also not do very well. Um, whether it's in power or out of power, because you just, if you can't have a coherent policy, then then it's very difficult as a practical matter to do anything useful. But um, I think one of the other things that I find so troublesome is the, you know, that that there's a roller coaster now. There's a Republican, uh, there's a Republican team and, and American allies are, or at least threatened American allies are happy. And then you have a Democratic uh, administration and they cancel everything that the Republicans did and so on and so forth. And so people don't really know who they're talking to anymore. In Israel, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of criticism, I think incredibly wrong criticism of Bibi, of uh, Netanyahu by the Israeli left saying, look, you made Israel a partisan issue. And, I, and I've written extensively on the fact that Netanyahu had nothing to do with that. I mean, he worked, he even worked well with Obama, but the point is that Israel became a Republican issue rather than just a national position because the Democrats changed their position on Israel. And so, you know, you can't have good, you, you can have a great dinner party with, with, uh, with progressives, but you can't expect them to actually do anything useful for you because they hate you. You know, I mean, they really just don't like Israel at all. They don't like America that much either, but I mean, they, they, they're not with us. So it doesn't matter if we get along with them because they, they don't want us to be strong and successful, you know. And and so for his American allies, this this roller coaster of of the rift of the, or the polarization of American politics and foreign policy is really alarming. You know? Well, it's it's you know in a way it's it's a it's a product of the fallout of the Cold War because you know during the Cold War we had you know 
bipartisan uh, unison on needing to counter the Soviets. And uh, you know, again, not to be Pollyannish about it, but I do think the clarity of of the threat that's cho- that is being uh, posed by the People's Republic of China is a clarifying moment for uh, for the United States in terms of how we are going to orient our our foreign policy. And I'll tell you, as we move into these midterms. China is starting to pick up as a campaign issue, like I have not seen a foreign policy issue since 9-11. Really? And yeah. How do you explain that? I mean, they haven't, they didn't blow up, you know, the Capitol building the way that Al-Qaeda blew up the World Trade Center uh, and the Pentagon. Well, you you could argue that what they did is worse. You're talking about with Wuhan. You're talking about with COVID. Yeah. That I mean, look what the world's been through in the right. last two plus years, and the number well, we're still of going have, through. And, still uh, going. Yes, and the number of people who have died, and you know, maybe they did it on purpose, maybe they didn't, maybe it was an accident. I don't actually care. The fact of the matter is, is they did it and they covered it up, and they didn't help clean up the mess once it was exposed. And you know, the as far as I can tell, vast majority of the scientific community was part of the cover-up because they were worried about backlash against science, that suddenly everyone would hate science because everyone hated COVID. Well, sorry, uh, you know, if, if, if y'all produce this, then, you know, you're, you do have some explaining to do. And, um, and I think, you know, per, just personally, America, this really resonated from President Trump, uh, you know, the, the fact that China has basically been you know, taking wild advantage of the United States for at least uh, 20 years, if not 30. I mean, I'd go back to Tiananmen and say that was when they really decided they had us. Uh, and because we we didn't go after them on that. And it was a deliberate policy of the first Bush administration not to, to try to exploit Tiananmen as a demonstration of how authoritarian and evil this, this regime was. They thought they were going to have a repeat of the of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and unfortunately, that didn't turn out to be the case. Uh, but I think the American people realize this is a huge problem, and they wonder, you know, why are you know our big funds, you know, BlackRock, Bridgewater, pouring money into China and China Tech, and thereby exposing the United States to to the contagion that comes from that? You know, they 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 really feel this very strongly. And I, I'm so curious to see what happens with the Olympics. Uh, because, you know, if this if this is basically a police state Olympics, uh, you know, that's going to be a real ugly look. And, you know, I was very heartened to see the announcement out of Israel yesterday that the Tel Aviv light, light rail tender was not given to a Chinese company. But I think the United States really needs to make sure we've got plenty of you know, bids in from, you know, our companies and our allies' companies. So Israel's not forced into that decision. That, that really is the thing, isn't it? I mean, when when you look at what what how the United States is debasing itself with the Biden administration, embracing the Iranians and, and, uh, 
and really at the expense of all of America's allies in the Middle East, the Arab states and Israel, and American uh, servicemen who are who are being being attacked by Iran's proxies. You know, uh, you see Ru Russia is now taking over. Uh, I don't want to say taking over, but becoming a very major arms supplier to Egypt. You have the the Saudis and the UAE are also buying platforms from the Chinese. And I, I mean, I'm sure that if Israel had the opportunity to buy, you know, some nice uh, 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 MIGs and Sukhois from uh, Russia, we probably would be interested in hearing about it. Certainly, if I were defense minister, I'd be interested in hearing about it. Though some of those planes are awesome, but uh, you know, you, you're. You, you look at this and, and you say, well, you know, if America is going to be kicking its its allies to to the to the curb, you know, nobody wants nobody in the right mind prefers Russia or China to to the United States. But if the United States is going to be betraying its allies, then you're you're putting you're putting U.S. allies in a position where they they're terrified of being dependent on Washington. No. no, it's it's that's definitely the case, and uh, you know what what we'll see is if if the and China you know, and it, just just to just to finish, yep. I mean, my thought is that China can very easily be be a a beneficiary, and and then what you know, I mean, I think you're absolutely well, right, like about China being the biggest threat that the United States faces, and in a way, it's even worse than than the Soviet Union because there's so much more, uh, there's there there's so much. I don't know what the word is. I, can't, I had it in my head and then I forgot it. But I mean, it, they're just, they're so um, underhanded in, in what they're doing. I mean, they've, it, they've gone about it so systematically and Russia was never an economic power and China is. And they're, they're undermining, as we've seen, U.S. manufacturing. They've gutted the Rust Belt. And uh, with, with the cooperation, by co-opting all of these major American uh, companies and bringing them over there and showering them with cash and uh, you know and so America is facing a huge challenge from China but but the Biden administration is telling America's allies go 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 to Beijing we're not helping you yeah. well that's that's I think their their fatal flaw and and as I said I think this is something the American people recognize pretty clearly uh, and. You know, it's it's easy to some extent in hindsight to see that you know it by the 1970s the Soviets were something of a paper tiger. Yeah, that didn't stop them from going into Afghanistan, although it didn't turn out well for them. Um, and you know, at after you know after the Reagan administration and the fall of the wall, you know, we could we could see behind the curtain literally and see you know how hollow that was. And I would just point out about the Chinese that they, you know, have been extremely successful on this campaign, uh, but they're not 100 feet high, and they have significant problems of their own um, that are everything from environmental to systemic financial uh, institution problems. And so, you know, there is plenty that the world's largest economy can can and still should do. And as much as I dislike pieces of it, you know, the fact that the Congressional Democrats felt compelled to put together a 3,000 page bill. It's called the Competes Act. A uh, lot of terrible things in it. But the whole point of the Competes Act is that they want to compete with China. So we might differ on the individual tactics that we would use, but that's a pretty clear demonstration that everybody sees it's a problem and that everybody's getting calls from their constituents acting, asking what we're doing about it. 
And so, you know, one thing I would really look forward to, uh, you know, if there if there is a change is, you know, you know, finding the Democrats that really want to make progress on this issue and figuring out what we can do together to counter it the way we had approached the Cold War. Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I, I think you're right. And I think that uh, the only way that you can really do that is from a position of strength, unfortunately, because right now the strength is a, on the far left. It's a challenge. It's it's a big challenge. Yeah, I, I'm reading a I'm reading a biography of uh, Senator Vandenberg, and interesting, striking, right? I mean, you know, he was a he was an interesting fellow, but uh, he was the for those of you who are reading a, a biography of uh, of uh, of uh, Senator Vandenberg. Vandenberg was one of the most high level isolationists in the U.S. Senate before World War II, and then. As the war progressed, he realized that the United States was going to have to uh, be involved with the war world after the war. And he was one of he worked very closely first with Roosevelt in 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 44 and 45 and then with Truman and really building the infrastructure for the for fighting the Cold War against the Soviet Union and the U.N. and 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 all the rest of it. And. Um, you know, it was interesting when you were saying about the bipartisan consensus about uh, the Soviet Union. It made me think, well, you know, when when you, when Truman was putting together his concepts and and the institutions for fighting the Cold War in the late 1940s, um, it was the Democrats that were the more hawkish party, and the Republicans were still coming around from the isolationism of the 1930s. Uh, which is why Vandenberg was so instrumental in that. But um, as time went on, you know, the the nuclear free movement, the anti nuke movement, uh, that was all of, and and of course the 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 yippies and you know the new left of the 1960s and 70s. I mean, these were all people who who were essentially pro-Soviets, and some of them were, were actually Soviet agents that were trying to undermine the American consensus, and they were on the left. And so it was the people who were built, who built the infrastructure, the party that built the infrastructure for fighting the Soviet Union, you know, 30 years later became the party that was undermining that infrastructure. And uh, so, so it sort of, it was sort of, it presaged kind of where, where the United States is today. But I agree that if you could find a democratic Vandenberg on China, that would be uh -huh. a really good thing. You know, what what we only have about 10 minutes left. And and you were also very uh, you know, you were the senior director for the Middle East uh, before you became the deputy national security advisor. And uh uh you were very involved with uh the uh, Trump administration's policies on the Palestinians and also with uh with of course uh, Senator Cruz's incredible support for Israel from the from the Senate. Um and um, when you, what what would you say about uh, where Biden is right now on the Palestinians? They're saying these crazy things about settler violence when when Israelis are being attacked all over the place by uh, Arab Israelis and by Palestinian Arabs, Jerusalem Arabs. We had uh, beautiful, we, we have wonderful snow uh, storms in Israel. They last for a day. The kids get to go out and play in the snow, build snowmen. My children built an igloo um, and um, and go sledding for one day. And then it all melts, which yeah, is We exactly, love the pictures. What? Yeah, we yeah, the, the pictures. Pictures are great. But uh, 
But then it's over, which is the best picture because you don't have to suffer in, you know, I came from Chicago where, where you had two, two seasons of the year, snow and construction, you know, getting rid of all the potholes that you got from the snow, which was there for six to eight months. So, you know, uh, but the Arabs in Jerusalem used that, that uh, 24, 48 hours that we had of snow last week to uh, throw rocks covered in snow at uh, Israelis, uh, in the old city of Jerusalem, uh, in Sheikh Jarrah, uh, mm -hmm. in uh, in uh, and at police uh, in uh, in in Jerusalem, and um, the the administration is attacking settler violence. That the Jews are the ones that are attacking, and it, and it really is very distressing. And where do you think that this is taking uh, the Palestinian conflict with Israel? How do you see this progressing? Well, that is, it is great personal sadness uh, because, you know, it, it was interesting in the Trump administration, you know, the clarity with which we approached Israel and, you know, the, the staunch support we had from Senator Cruz and congressional allies, it was, was really, uh, I thought, transformative. And in the early part of the administration, you know, when there was still some, you know, ray of hope that a, a peace deal would be achieved. And certainly the president was very frank that he wanted to do that. He wanted to get that situation resolved. Uh, you know, and the Palestinians we were talking to, you know, because we also knew, you know, discussions that would eventually become the Abraham Accords were going on. And, you know, trying to explain to the Palestinians, you know, this is your moment of maximum leverage. You, you have something right now that everybody wants. And you can either leverage it to get to whatever is the best deal that you can achieve, or you can squander it. And they squandered it. And, you know, that was finally what I think it had UAE and Bahrain just completely fed up is they just won't listen to this anymore. And there was a remarkable uh, op-ed in, I believe, the Kuwait paper, which I can, I can share with you and you can share it with your audience from the last day or so, you know, in which a, you know, an Arab writer says, you know, the, the jig is up. This is ridiculous. We should all normalize with Israel because, you know, they are a partner and it is a productive relationship. And I mean, he's not going on, you know, hymns of praise of the Jewish state, but he's like, this is just a practical reality at this point. And, so very disappointing that the administration seems to be trying to stuff the genie back into the bottle. I think, you know, given just the, I mean, catastrophic failure, it's hard to call it anything else, of the Palestinian Authority and the even more disastrous failure of Hamas in Gaza, you know, how can you expect anything positive? to come out of this. And well, I, don't I don't know what- the I don't think that that's what this is about, Victoria. I mean, I, I, I would assume you would agree with me. I mean, this is not about trying to get peace. It's about being opposed to Israel. I mean, you right. know, this, no, that, and that's this, the is, thing. this is pure hostility to Israel and it comes from Europe and it comes from the American left. And, and you know, they, they want to pursue this policy because they hate Israel and they don't want Israel around. I mean, they share that with Hamas and with the PLO. And so they do it insidiously and they do it subversively and they do it while saying, oh, we love Israel, just like the Germans do and the French do. And, and, and the, you know, that's what the Americans are doing. We tough love, right? Um, 
but uh, I mean that and and the Arabs, on the other hand, are looking at it as neighbors who are in this region right. together with the Jewish state and see a lot to gain from having good neighborly relations with them. So that I don't I, I mean, more and more now I've, I've seen it for a very long time and I've written about it. But I, it recently, I guess since Biden came in or maybe since Corbyn, I don't know, but it's the sense is that this isn't about the Arabs. I mean, the Arab-Israeli conflict is over. It's done. Um, it's done. Like you said, Chevron uh, uh, buying Noble Energy and and taking over its gas fields uh, uh, in Israel's coastal waters. You know that was the end of it. But um, but the Palestinian conflict is is getting more important because it's not an Arab conflict. It's a it's a Western conflict with Israel. And, and that's what's so disturbing about it, in my view. No, I, I agree 100%. I think we're, we're sort of coming at the same thing from a different angle. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, and that's one of the things that's been exposed is, you know, this, this you know, pursuit of a peace deal with whatever is, is purporting to be the Palestinian leadership, you know, to get to a, you know, a peace with, between Israel and the Arabs, that's just not true anymore. No. And but 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 I feel like the Biden folk, because you have, you know, John Kerry famously on record saying there can be no peace between the Palestinians and or the Israelis and the Arabs until the Palestinian issue. I mean, it's almost like they want to go back and make that true, you know, because they can't bear to be wrong. And instead of it's just not taking you think it's that they don't they can't bear to be wrong or that they they simply don't want to be that they're not going to allow it to happen. I mean, they they were opposed to the to the Abraham Accords, you know, there was not one Democrat who came to the opening of of the of the embassy in Jerusalem. Not one, not even Senator Schumer, you know, none of them. And then not, I think none of them came to the Abraham signing accords either. They 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 boycotted this historical peace deal with Israel. And you know, we mustn't forget the Palestinians, and we're for a two-state solution, and that's what we want to do, and we want to open the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem. And by the way, what I understand is that the American official, I don't remember what his name is anymore, is responsible for the Palestinians inside of the embassy uh, is not subordinate to the ambassador, that he reports directly to the secretary so that even though he's not uh, a, a consul general that's independent of the embassy, that he essentially is a, an independent actor acting under the aegis of the US embassy. Yeah, that's that's going to be an administrative mess. Uh, so I think it should be watched closely. But I do think this exposes the fact that that what the two state solution crowd, you know, who just recite these articles of faith, you know, 67 borders, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's a reason those borders were untenable in 1967. So, you know, going back to them isn't going to actually solve anything. And this exposes that. That this is this is not a, a a good faith attempt to resolve a thorny issue, which would be in Israel's best interest to get a, you know, get this resolved. Uh, but it is it is this. Kind well, it depends of, how it's resolved because exactly you know, the two state solution just really means dissolve Israel, have an Israel have a Jewish Arab state, and then have a have a have a Jew free state that'll gobble up the Jewish Israel state, you know. And that's that's absolutely it, that that 
that that has been revealed as a, not a way to try to, to get to a good resolution for Israel, but to try to undermine Israel. Right. And I think they need to own that. Well, I mean, it would be interesting to know, do you think that this might be something that the Republicans would want to, um, you know, use? I know when I wrote my book, The Israeli Solution, which is right behind me, if you guys want to, you can buy it on Amazon, just saying, but um, I, I was quoting the, I was quoting Newt Gingrich, I think it was in the uh, Republican debates ahead of the 2012 elections. Mm -hmm. uh, where he was saying that he didn't support a Palestinian state and that, you know, it was, it, why would you do that? And it was really the beginning of a move by the Republicans to get away from this paradigm that was so disastrous and so dumb, you know, I mean, it just, it really was the definition of an insanity as, as Einstein said, of trying to do the same experiment over and over and expecting different results. And, uh, you know, the, then you had the Trump saying that Trump saying he wanted to get a piece, he wanted to get a deal, he wanted to get the deal of the century, and he was all for pal, you know, one state, two state, whatever you want. But he really did, you know, support Palestinian statehood, as we found out, uh, particularly in some post-presidential interviews that he gave to a an anti-Trump uh, Israeli reporter. But um, you know, you, you look at that and you wonder, is this something that, you know, would be a Republican policy in a Republican majority Congress that could then, you know, uh, change the way that in a very major significant way that the, that the Republican Party talks about the Palestinians as a counterbalance or whatever um, contrast to the Democrats? I, I would I would hope so. Uh, and I think you know, I can't speak for Senator Cruz. I mean, I, I know his views on this topic, uh, that, that, you know, he is not without sympathy for, you know, the many unfortunates who have suffered under, you know, Palestinian leadership. But there, there just is no comparison between the Palestinians and Israel. And, you know, you could argue that there really never was one, but certainly over the course of the last you know, 30, 40 years, you know, the enormous value the United States has gotten out of the relationship with Israel and the negative value uh, that we've gotten out of whatever relationship we've had with, with the Palestinians. I mean, just sheer self-interest should make this a pretty easy, obvious call. And, uh, you know, you could get into the moral case for it if you want, but I don't even think you have to go there. You know, just just look at it in terms of, of what is in the best interests of the United States, and you know it. That to me is is a no brainer, and so I think it would be a very interesting issue, you know, to raise. Uh, you know, I think support for Israel is is a political winner going into twenty two and twenty four for in the United States. I've seen a lot of polling on it. You know, there have been a lot of hand wringing over decline for the uh for the alliance i really don't see that in the numbers and you know what it needs is is forceful defending and so i think that would be a very interesting conversation to have i agree and uh and i and i hope that we'll proceed and have that conversation and in the future when you come back to the to the to the middle east news hour and we'll talk about it maybe a little bit closer to the elections as well and and see where these things are moving because it's one of those funny things, which is that you almost get tired. I mean, you almost, I am tired of talking about the Palestinians. I mean, I was in, in, in the talks with the Palestinians when I was in the army. And since then, you know, just been, 
center in, in central in, in everything that happened, whether it's because we were being blown up in buses or or because we were being pushed around at the UN or or wherever else, but it just it just never seems to go away, and it's constantly being used as a, as a means to delegitimize the very existence of Israel and to kill a lot of Israelis. Uh, so it would be great to think about how how we can wrest uh, Israel from the clutches of this of this Western assault on Israel with the proxies uh, that are the Palestinians. So uh -huh. um, and move forward. Um, Victoria, I want to thank you very, very much for joining me today. And it was on such short notice. You guys should know she's a great sport. I asked her and she said, sure, which was amazing because I've been wanting to have you on the show for quite some time. So I'm glad we were able to do that and get, make some sense of all of the things that are happening and understand the stakes of, uh, of the Biden administration's uh, incredibly horrible policies in the Middle East and hope for the better. So thank you. And we look forward to having you back. I look forward to having you back and we being the royal we of me, myself and I. It was great. It was great pleasure to have you and privilege. Always a pleasure to talk to you uh, and look forward to, to further debate. Okay, good. All right, great. So we'll see you guys all next week. And uh, and uh, what was I gonna say? Oh yeah, we'll see you all next week. And remember to subscribe to my channel if you haven't done it yet. And, and share this show with everybody that you know, even if they don't like you, do it anyway, because it's always important. And uh, we'll see you later. Thank you so much.